Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I am going to cover verses 12 through 27 of Romans chapter 8. I will entitle this section, my title is Future Glory as Heirs with Christ. So we have something to look forward to instead of wrath and condemnation in this audio. The context is this, wrath and condemnation was pointed out by Paul as the due of all humans in chapters 1 and 2. Then at the end of chapter 3, he starts talking about justification by faith. We need to be declared righteous before God. He covers that in chapters 3, 4, and 5. Then he gets to chapter 6 and 7, and he's talking about how we can be sanctified in this earth as opposed to being justified in the courtroom of, uh, of heaven. And the problem with our sanctification in this life is in chapter 6, sin makes us slaves. In chapter 7, law produces sin. And sin not only makes us slaves, it makes us corpses, makes us dead. So he goes to chapter 8 and finds out, we find out there in chapter 8, that we can live in the Spirit to break all the baneful effects of living a life of under the sin and under the law. And under the flesh, too, by the way, because sin and law is always associated with our flesh. So the first 11 verses of chapter 8, I called Life in the Spirit Beats Life Under the Law, Sin, slavery, flesh, and death. And now in verses 12 through 27, he's going to move from the glorious way of living in the Spirit in this life to what we have to look forward to in the next life, in the afterlife, in the final state in heaven, in the presence of God for eternity. So we start with verse 12. So then, brothers, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So then, what's Paul referring to? Well, he's referring to the previous two verses. Because Jesus Christ is in Christians, and because the Holy Spirit is in Christians, so then, therefore, we are not obligated to live in the flesh. Because Jesus is in us and the Holy Spirit is in us, that means we are no longer obligated, no longer slaves to the flesh. Romans 18, 8.10 says, Now if Christ is in you... The body is dead because of, the, of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. There's the conflict between, the contrast between sin and righteousness, between death and life. So verse 10 says, Christ is in you. Verse 11 says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, which he does. So there's the two reasons, the two preceding statements that Paul has made to make him say, so then, because of these two facts, brothers, we're not obligated to the flesh. Now, the flesh, of course, is, a sim is symbolic of a life dominated by sinful passions. That's a common metaphor he uses. It does not mean the physical body here. It doesn't mean the stuff that's stretched over your, your bones, the meat and the skin that's fleshed over your bones. In fact, if it did mean that, that, that would make God's creation of body sinful because Paul always refers to the flesh in a negative sense in these passages. But, of course, the flesh is not sinful. Did, would God create sinful flesh? He created Adam and Eve from the dust of the ground. Did he create something sinful? Of course not. True Christianity rejects asceticism. So we're not obligated to the flesh. That means living our life either to actively pursue sin or try to act, actively pursue righteousness in the power of our own flesh, absent from God's animating power. Either way, we don't have to live like that. Now, Paul says, so then, brothers, that sounds like he is now speaking both to Jews and Gentiles jointly, although Adam Clark points out that Paul has spent the first part of the letter speaking to the Jews separately from the Gentiles, and that's very clear as we've seen in going through the first seven chapters. Now when Paul says that we are ob not obligated to the flesh, that means that if we're sold into slavery, we owe our master's obedience, and so when he's talking about obligation, he's talking about being a slave. Romans 7, 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm made out of flesh, sold into sin's power. If you're sold, if a human being is sold into something, that means he's sold as a slave. So we're slaves to sin when we're unregenerate. Now, there is a question here. We are not obligated. Who's the we refer to? Does it refer to unregenerate people? Well, again, the R makes it sound like he's talking about regenerate Christians, including Paul, which means that it is possible for Christians to voluntarily sin and, and and pursue a course of action that's contrary to their true natures as saints, as new men in Christ. But some people could say that this is talking about we before we got saved. Well, I, that's, of course, the big controversy in Romans 7. But this verse right here says we are brothers. We are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. 
Well, I mean, you could say we now as Christians are not allowed to the flesh because we used to be in the flesh and now we're not in the flesh, so I guess that could go either way. But in my opinion, it's referring to a Christian trying to not live a carnal, fleshly slave life under the law. We go to Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. I like to put certain words together as a mantra. Law, sin, flesh, slavery, and death. Law, sin, flesh, slavery, and death. They all go together. You mention one, you might as well mention all of them together. They are intimately connected. And here's where flesh is connected with death. For if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. Verse 13, Romans 8. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And this is the key, how you sanctify yourself, not by keeping the law and the weakness of your flesh, but by the Holy Spirit killing the deeds of your flesh. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. Now, here Paul uses a different metaphor. Actually, doesn't use a metaphor at all. He's talking about putting to death the deeds of the body, which is what he otherwise, in other places calls the flesh. Body here is not flesh, it's from soma, which is a physical body, not sarks, which can be used metaphorically. But you notice that what's being put to death is not the body. We don't believe in asceticism. We're not killing the, flesh, the, the, the skin and meat that's stretched over your bones. We're not referring to that. What's put to death is the deeds that your body does. And, of course, when you are operating under the power of sin, i.e. the flesh, then your body will commit sins because that's how sins are done. I mean, you you are not a airy wraith of a spirit floating through the world committing sins. No, you commit sins with your body. It doesn't mean your body is evil, but it means that your body has been infected with sin and is doing evil things contrary to your nature, and it needs to be stopped. And how does it stopped? By the Holy Spirit. If by the Spirit you put to death, or mortify, some translations have, mortify the deeds of your flesh. You have trouble with a besetting sin, just pray, Holy Spirit, come in here and kill that sin. I don't want it anymore. You're having trouble, you're addicted to pornography or tempted to have an illicit liaison with someone, not your wife, or whatever it might be. Say, Holy Spirit, come in and kill that sin. Make Change my mind so I don't think that way anymore. If you do that, you will live. There's that contrast, spirit and life, flesh and death. Now, once again, this is talking about the sanctification of Christians, and it sounds to me like he's talking about Christians who are regenerate. He's not talking about unregenerate people. He's talking about people that are struggling with sin now because he says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I don't think that automatically happens at justification. You put to death every sin of your body, every sin that your body commits. This is talking about ongoing sanctification of the believer, in my humble opinion. Now, Paul says you're going to die. Romans 8 speaks of three different kinds of death. You're going to die if you live according to the flesh. There's three kinds of death mentioned in Romans 8. There's physical death. Romans 8, 11, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. That's physical death. Then there's spiritual death in this life. That's in Romans 8, 6. For the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. And of course, the flesh there is metaphorical. Mindset of a sinful mind that is trapped by the power and under the control of the law of the flesh, under the control of, of sin and the seductions of sin. So you can have spiritual death in this life. So we've got physical death in Romans 8.11, spiritual death in Romans 8.6. Notice in Romans 8.6, the mindset of the flesh is death as a present tense. It's not talking about the future, really. But now in verse 13, we're talking about future death, eternal spiritual death and hell. If you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. Well, does, is, does Paul mean that? Well, again, if he's talking about unregenerate people, that's true. If you live, they live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But what is he? if he's talking about regenerate people here, then regenerate people who are living under the law as carnal Christians bound by the flesh, they're going to die spiritually. Hmm. Well, that verse cuts against my feeling that this verse reply, uh, applies to Christians being currently sanctified. If you're going, if, if it means you're going to die eternally, go to hell. Obviously, that's not talking about Christ, unless Christians, unless you're an Armenian, of course, believe you're going to lose your salvation, which I don't believe. Well, let's just say here that what Paul is talking about is you want spiritual, you want death, you want to get further and further alienated from God, and you want to live a life of hell on earth. If you're a Christian, well, go ahead and do that, but you're going to be sorry. I mean, I've seen Christians. Do, I saw somebody talking about smoking meth with her fiance. And then getting into pornography, not watching it, but acting in it, that's death. I'm not saying she's ultimately going to go to hell, but she's going to kill herself here in this life. 
And the present tense here, if by the Spirit you Christians put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That sounds like Paul's talking about Christians. John Gill says that this verse, this phrase, put to death, is talking about sanctification, not regeneration. Of course, he takes the same view that I do, that, the, that Paul is dealing with Christians in Romans 7 and 8. Jameson Fawcett and Brown sums it all up. If you don't kill sin, it will kill you. It's either sin or you. You better make a choice. Now, notice Paul says you will live. We will live in three ways corresponding to the three deaths I just mentioned. Physically, we will we physically die because of sin. Well, physically, we will be resurrected and physically live. Spiritually, we die because we are become under the bondage of sin, but we can live free from the bondage of sin spiritually. And eternally, eternally we will live in the presence of God. Physically, spiritually, physically in this life, excuse me, physically in the next life we will be resurrected spiritually. In this life we live free from the bondage of, bondage of sin, and eternally we will live in the presence of God. Not bad. We go to Romans 8:14. All those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. I think Paul here is trying to reassure these Christians who are having trouble with living in the flesh. Hey, you're God's sons. You you can live like a son, not like a slave. Now, when we are sons of God, that means God is our Father. But God is our Father in two senses. He's the Father in one sense of everyone, saved and unsaved. He created everyone, so He's their Father. His love and providential care are extended to all, Matthew 5:45, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So he's Father God, in the sense of a creator God. But in another sense, he's the father of believers only. John 8:44. you are of your father the devil. Jesus is talking to bad guys here, non-believers, Pharisees, I think. You are of your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and has not stood in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of liars. So, in that sense, God is the father of non-believers. John 1, 12-13, but, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name. So, only those who receive Christ do we become children of God in the saved sense. He's the father of everyone in the created sense, but in the in the sense of being saved there's only one uh, there's there's only one type of child of God and that's those who believe in God now notice Paul says all those led by God's spirit are God's sons he's trying to convince these Romans that they're God's sons how, how by appealing to their experience in life if they're led if they walk in the spirit they've had experience with Jesus leading them and every Christian should have this there's nothing wrong with appealing to subjective experience Paul did it all the time. He he constantly said, you know, you know this, you know, you know, you know. He was appealing to their experience. And there's nothing wrong with that. As long as you don't appeal to your experience apart from the Scripture, then you become a mystic in the bad sense of the word. Romans 8.15 For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. He's talking about receiving the Holy Spirit when you got saved. That Holy Spirit was not did not lead you to slavery. It did not lead you to fall into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. Now, the Holman Christian Study Bible has a spirit of slavery, not meaning the Holy Spirit, because they don't capitalize it. But I think that Paul is referring to the Holy Spirit, not just re referring to an attitude. I've got a spirit. I've got an attitude of slavery. Could be, but I don't think that's what he was doing. I think he says, I looked at the spirit that you received at, at regeneration. He was not a spirit of slavery. But you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, first of all, let's take this word, Abba, Father. That's Aramaic. Father is the English translation of the Greek. Abba has often been said by millions of preachers, it means Daddy. No, it does not. There's a lot of good articles on the translation of that word. I think it was a guy, in, a theologian in Germany, who came up with the idea that Abba could be translated as Daddy. And, unfortunately, he was wrong. There was a lot of other theologians who pointed out to him that you were wrong, and he eventually revoked his contention. But that thing took off kind of like the Jabez prayer, you know, which was nonsense. How about the Ezekiel bread? That's nonsense. A lot of stuff comes out of the Bible. But anyway, uh, that's not, that's not, that's twisted. But Abba does not mean, uh, the best translation I saw, it, it means father, but it's not 
it's a little bit more intimate than father. Father's a little bit distant. So it's somewhere between father and daddy, papa, somewhere in between, like dear father. I think that was a good translation I saw one time, dear father. But at any rate, only children can cry out father, and we got to have the Holy Spirit to do that. We receive such a spirit. He was a spirit of adoption because we were adopted into the kingdom. Now, only four times does the word adoption appear in the New Testament, according to the NIV Study Bible. In Romans 8.23, we read this, and not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now, that's the final stage of adoption when we have our glorified body in heaven. Then in Romans 9.4, we read this, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. So there, all of Israel is adopted as God's holy nation, referring back to the Old Testament. Galatians 4.5, To redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, and therefore we are adopted in this life as Christians. And Galatians 4.5 would line up with Romans 8.15 when Paul says, you have received the spirit of adoption. Paul says in Galatians 4.5, you have received adoption as sons. Same thing. And then Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us to be adopted through, adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and will. And that means before the foundation of the world, we were predestined to be adopted. And of course, adopted has the same sense as it does in English. You go from your natural parents to your adopted parents. Well, in the, this using the metaphor for Christians, our Original birth parents would be the devil because we inherit original sins and our father is the devil. And we are enemies of God and the wrath of God is on us and then we are adopted into God's family. That means we all legal rights of the previous family are cut off just like in the law and the devil has no more legal claim on us and now our adopted father is every bit as much of a father as our natural father is. Just just like it is in, in current law in, in, in America and in, in the West. Or in the East, everywhere it's like that. The adopted son had all the rights of a natural son, including inheritance rights. And Paul's getting ready to talk about inheritance here. So that's probably why he's talking about sons, because sons are heirs of the father. And our father is no longer the devil. Our father is God the Father, the maker of the heavens and the earth. The NIV Study Bible puts it this way. Christians are adopted sons of God by grace. Jesus is the son of God by nature. Put puts what this way puts the distinction between jesus the son and dan trotter the son dan trotter is an adopted son of god by grace because i don't deserve it because my original birth father was the devil but jesus he never had to be adopted he was naturally the son of god that metaphor works pretty good now paul says in verse 15 that we did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear sin leads to slavery as i mentioned earlier let's pick up some verses in Romans 6, which is Paul's chapter that he devoted to sin. Romans 6, 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion of the body, in order that sin's dominion, I left out a word there, over the body may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Enslaved to sin. Sin leads to slavery. Romans 6, 17, verses 17 through 18. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed. You used to be slaves of sin. Now that slavery leads to fear. Living a life of law, sin, and the flesh that does not, and death that does not bring peace of mind. What precisely is it that one in slavery would fear? Steve Ackerson says it's the wrath of God against sin. <laughs> That's the ultimate fear. Of course, there's also fear that something bad might happen to you in this life. Somebody might attack you, somebody might kill you, you might have an accident, you might you might, might get your boss mad, you might lose your job. There's all kind of fear. Everybody lives in fear. That's why I love the Sermon on the Mount. He says, hey guys, you don't even need to worry. Worry is just another name for fear, is it not? And Jesus said, you don't need to worry about that, about anything, about what you eat, what you drink, what you wear. But at any rate, the ultimate thing that we ought to fear is condemnation of, of God because of our sin. Romans 8.1 says, therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. And that's why when we live a life in the spirit, we're not under condemnation because we did not receive a spirit of slavery. We live, we receive a slavery, which makes us fall into condemnation and fear. But we have received the Holy Spirit of Christ. We go now to Romans 8 verse 16. Paul continues, 
The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. Two out of the mouth, what is it, um, two or three, no testimony is good unless out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. And here we have two witnesses, the Holy Spirit and our spirit. They testify together in one accord that we are God's children. Now, this shows that there is a subjective witness to the truth as well as objective ones. There's lots of objective reasons why we believe in Jesus. But as I said earlier, there's nothing wrong with appealing to subjective experience. Paul does it right here. The Holy Spirit testifies and our spirit testifies that we are God's children, which is the same thing as the sons of God. They're synonyms. Now, sometimes we might doubt the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, and some people do, and they, all of a sudden they think they're not saved anymore. What can make us feel that way? Well, some sin that we commit, we feel so sinful and unworthy, as John Gill points out. Maybe it's a temptation of the devil to make us doubt who we really are, heirs of God, heirs, co-heirs with Christ, or sometimes just trials and afflictions beat us down, and we say, well, where are you, God? But... Deep down inside, there's always that testimony of the Spirit. You belong to me, Dan, and I'm not going to let you go. Now, Paul says in verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit. What is our spirit? Well, Steve Ackerson has got a good definition here. That part of man that relates to and interacts with the spiritual realm. I think that's a perfect definition. And I will point out that if you have a spirit that interacts with the spiritual realm, that would include the demonic before you're saved. You can get in touch with the devil. A lot of people do that and they sell their souls to the devil and they get full of demons. Their spirit becomes demonized. But of course our spirit can also commune with God and that's what Paul is talking about here. So the Holy Spirit is communing with our spirit. Now of course if you, this, I got to mention the dichotomous trichotomous controversy. Some people say that soul slash spirit are the same thing. It can commune with God. Whereas trichotomists say the soul is the mind, will, and emotions which really all Christ, all people have. And it cannot commune with God, but the Spirit is something separate that communes with God. That doesn't matter here. The point is, is that we commune with God through our spirit. It is subjective. It is internal. And it is true, even though it's not objective in this case. Now, notice that Paul says in Romans 8:16, the Spirit himself testifies because the Holy Spirit is a person. He has personality, and that's why we call it himself and I might add to the nitwitted, any nitwitted feminist that might be listening here, I'm sure you're not, but it's not the spirit herself. That is blasphemous nonsense. Feminist crapola that is flooding the church. Somehow it's managed, I've managed to escape it, and hopefully I'll escape it till the day I die. But anyway, it's the spirit himself. Now, I will point out that the King James Bible translates it this way, the spirit itself. Oh my gosh, what a horrible translation. Now, if a KGV-only person ever confronts me, they haven't yet, but if they ever do, I'm going to say two things. I'm going to say, number one, I do not use as the only translation a version of the Bible that has the word piss in it. That's number one. And number two, I'm not going to use a version of the Bible as my main and sole translation that calls the Holy Spirit and it. And that's the end of the story. You can get into all the philosophical nonsense you want to about KGV-only trends. I mean, I was in China, and there was a, this fundamentalist guy over there trying to learn Chinese so he could teach Chinese people how to read English so they could read 17th century English. That is the dumbest thing. I've, I've seen Christians do a lot of dumb things, but that has got to be the dumbest. For one thing, it takes two or three lifetimes to learn Chinese, if you ever learn it, which you probably won't. And then you've got to teach the Chinese person to speak English properly, which he he's not really ever going to learn how to speak it properly. And then when you're going to put him back into a dialect of English back in the 1600s, my gosh. Well, let's move on to Romans 8, verse 17. It's in the middle of a sentence, so I need to go back to verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, verse 17. And if children, also heirs. Because if you're a child, naturally children inherit. And if children, also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ seeing that we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Now, we're heirs, so that means we're going to receive something after we die. But then the Study Bible points out we have already partially entered upon our inheritance. We have a down payment, as we'll see in a minute, the Holy Spirit, and all the good things that come from that, forgiveness for our sins and so forth. Now, Thayer defines an heir as someone who receives his allotted possession by right of sonship. You've got to be a son in order to be an heir. But well, Paul's already said we are adopted. Christians are adopted by God, so therefore that gives us the right to inherit. Now, what do we inherit? Steve Ackerson says glory. 
Well, that's true. Everything is in God. But the main thing here, as we're getting ready to see in Romans 8, is glory in the final state. So that's good news. We're heirs of God we receive from our Father. But now notice we're co-heirs with Christ because Christ is a son too. The scripture clearly and explicitly states that Jesus is an heir as a son. Hebrews 1-2 says this, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things. God has appointed Jesus heir of all things. We're sons and Jesus is son. Jesus is the natural son. We are the adopted sons. Now, here's a question. How can Jesus inherit something? He's already got everything. He was eternal with God from the, end of the, from the, from the beginning of the world. He's already got everything, so why can't he inherit something? An heir at one time doesn't have property, and then he does have property. You can't say that about Jesus. Well, there's one. here's a possible answer. These are my answers. I didn't read it in a commentary anywhere. It was my question that I raised in my own mind, and I didn't see anybody that answered it, which happens all the time when you're reading commentaries. Well, my answer is this. The metaphor is not meant to be pressed that far. It just means that Christ is going to have everything, and we're going to have everything in the end. And we are his brothers. That satisfies me. Here's another idea. Jesus in his incarnate state didn't own everything, but then he did in his incarnate state. That makes, that makes good sense to me, too, actually. We're co-heirs with Christ in his human nature because Jesus is going to inherit it all just like we are. Jesus, the human Jesus. Now, why are we heirs? Seeing that we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified in him. Well, because if we're suffering with Jesus, that means we are identified with Jesus. He suffers, we suffers. If he's going to inherit, we're going to inherit because he's our brother. Now, the NIV says, has if indeed we suffer with him. And it sounds like as a condition. We got, if we're going to have to suffer in order that we may glorify with him. But that's not really the best translation. The Hovind Christian Study Bible has seen that in the sense of, since it's obvious that, since it's already happened that we are, we're suffering with him. It's not that we've got to suffer some more so that we can get saved. It's, we, we're already suffering with him. And let's face it, folks. Any Christian, some suffer more, some suffer less, but every Christian in this life will suffer. I'll never forget the time I was in a church in Shantou, China, and this church had been around for 20 or 30 years, and it had been, in fact, while I was there, it got kicked out of its building by the cops. They had to run. They had to reorganize underground, and they came back. It, was a, it wasn't a three-self church, but they were meeting in an apartment building where every, all the cops could see them. They were, they were above ground, if you will, and... They had three Hong Kong theologically trained pastors, which was also unusual. And the woman who had started the church about 25 years earlier, she walks up and she says to the people in the church, she says, how many of you want to suffer? And there was dead silence. Now, you know, that question would never even be asked in an American church, but it was asked. Maybe two or three people raised their hand. She just said they repeated the same question. How many of you want to suffer? <laughs> Maybe four or five more hands come up. Third time. How many of you want to suffer? She got half the church to raise the hand. She said, the fourth time, without blinking an eye, without changing a word, she says, how many of you want to suffer? And finally, she got everybody to raise their hand. But I did not. I just pretended I couldn't understand the Chinese. But unfortunately, that was the, the rare occasion I could understand the Chinese from the front, and I didn't want to raise my hand. I mean, suffering is a terrible thing, but we're all going to suffer, let's face it. It's going to happen. But the good news is, is that we are going to be glorified. We suffer with him in this present life, but in the final state, we are going to be glorified with him, Paul says in verse 17 of Romans 8, because we are heirs not only of God, but we are co-heirs with Christ. Now, when Paul says we're going to suffer with Christ in this verse, what does he mean? Well, here's some options. It could mean that we suffer as we struggle with sin. As Jesus suffered in resisting temptation to sin, especially when he was in the desert with the devil, it could mean that we suffer trials and persecutions even as Jesus did. I mean, if we think that we're living in a hostile culture today in America, think about how Jesus lived. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, everybody, all the cultural gatekeepers in Jerusalem wanted Jesus' head. What a way to live. But he did. He suffered. And when Jesus suffered, we suffer vicariously. When Jesus suffered, that's a third option, what it means to suffer. It's not that we are physically being su be suffering, but when we watch the passion of Christ and watch Jesus up, nailed up there on that cross, and it just kills us because we're seeing him, seeing him die for us, that uh, we suffer when we see it. 
John Gill says, quote, Christ and his people being one, he the head and they the members suffered together. When he suffered, they suffered with him and in him as their head and representative. And folks, I saw that movie. I was crying and everybody in the theater was crying. And I turned around and saw this young man standing up, sobbing like a baby, tears rolling down his face. It was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, we suffer when Jesus suffers, but one, but you know, he rose from the dead. He he got past his suffering, and we he was glorified, and we're going to be glorified too. He's the first fruits, not only in our redemption and our and our justification, but also in our glorification. It's going to be over. All the suffering down here is going to be over. There's two indications that we're God's children, as as Paul says in this verse. He says, we're children, we're heirs, we're heirs of God, co-heirs of Christ, because we suffer with him. That's the first reason, because we're willing to suffer with him in this verse. If God's natural son, Jesus, suffers, it's only logical that God's adopted sons, Jesus' brothers, are going to suffer too, because the same people that hate Jesus hate us, okay? So that's the first indication that we're God's children. We're willing to suffer with him. And the second indication that we're God's children is in the previous verse, Romans 8:16. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. Two ways we know that we're saved. We suffer with him and the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. We go to Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Paul mentions that glory in 1 Corinthians 2.9. But as it is written, what eye did not see and ear did not hear and what never entered the human mind, God prepared this for those who love him. That's the good news, folks. You know, people a lot of times say there's not a lot written about heaven. Maybe not in particular, but there's a lot written about glory, the good, good stuff that's going to happen to us. Eternal life is mentioned a lot. And right here in Corinthians, man, you can't even, you, you can't even imagine what it's like up there. That's why I like watching these. These out-of-body experiences, excuse me, not uh, near-death experiences. I remember I saw one the other day by a doctor named Mary Neal. She was on a kayak 30 minutes underwater, which is a long time to not be breathing. And, of course, her she died, depending on how you define died. You know, let's put it this way. Her spirit left her body. And she she was accompanied, I think, by angels, I think, as she was heading toward paradise, and she got a view of it. And she didn't end up staying there of course she came back and she didn't tell her family about it for a long time at least her daughters she says because she didn't want to come back she said and you know a lot of people have these near-death experiences who have good reason for not coming back you know they've been raped or abused or something or they have two to three years of rehab because they got shot in the head or something or, or, or had a terrible car wreck but no she was perfectly okay well she knew she could come back and be all right uh, and and she did come back, and she was perfectly all right, didn't have to go through rehab, but she didn't want to tell her kids about it because she was ashamed to tell them that she preferred to go to heaven than stay at home where she had a loving husband. She was a doctor. Make, I'm sure she was making plenty of money, and she said her life was just fine. In fact, she wasn't even a dedicated Christian before she had this death experience because she had put God out of her life and put her career in place of it. And how many people do we know that do that? Well, she's changed now, but it it was so good. Heaven was so good. She didn't want to go back to her own daughters. And she was embarrassed for years to tell her daughters that she would rather be in heaven than to be with her daughters because she thought her daughters would be offended. Now, if heaven is so good compared to the good things on earth, think of how good it's going to be compared to the sufferings of this present world. Paul says, I I consider, I mean, he's thought about it a long time. I consider the sufferings of this present time, you, you can't even compare them to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. And believe me, Paul had a lot of suffering. I mean, he was shipwrecked. He was stoned and left for dead on his first journey. In fact, he was whipped all kinds of times, you know, as he's, as he's pointed out in his gospel, in his letters. But he said, I don't care because, man, it's going to be great. He had visions, too. I'm sure God showed him a little a little bit of the heaven stuff up there when he was when he went up to the third heaven. I think he had a vision of it. He got to see what it's like, and he says, I can't wait to get there. Glory that is going to be revealed to us. Glory means splendor, grandeur, glory. And Paul had considered this. Paul had given a lot of thought to the problem of suffering. Consider is an accounting term that carries the idea of a calculated, careful, figured, reasoned, well thought through process. It's an accounting term. So he sat down and rationally looked at suffering and said, I'd rather be 
And I'd rather suffer this suffering than not suffer it because when I suffer this suffering, I'm going to get to experience glory. And boy, I tell you, if that won't sustain you. I remember reading one time about a slave in a silver mine, I think it was in the Roman Empire, some mine, and oh my gosh, the mining conditions back then were absolutely hell on earth. And so they would crawl down there in the dark, in the dust, and, and they were slaves, and the, and the masters would deliberately work them, and knowing they were going to kill them, that the slaves could not survive it, they were eventually going to die because the conditions were so bad. And somebody, some archaeologist found a cross etched into the stone with the word hope under it, I think it was. And that slave had no hope, but he was thinking about the glory that he was going to get after suffering what he was suffering in this life. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For our momentary light affliction, light affliction, is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Light affliction, now remember, Paul is the guy that's been beaten and thrown in jail and stoned. That's light. Big deal. Because compared to what's coming, boy, it's incomparable. You can't compare the glory to the suffering. And it's eternal. It lasts forever. And it's a weight. It's heavy. It's so it's so glorious. So when Paul says in Romans 8.13, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing, that's the same thing as he said in 2 Corinthians 4.17, momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. There's no point in even comparing the two. It's not worth comparing because the comparison is so, there's the, the divergence between the two things, the suffering and the glory, is so great. It's not worth your effort to try to compare it. It's like comparing apples and oranges. You can't even put them on the pleasure scale. Or the pain scale. Now the sufferings of this present time that Paul mentions in verse 18 is could be the sufferings of the apostolic age. It could be the sufferings of the time of Paul's life on earth. I think most probably that's too specific. He's just talking about the presence of the temporal order when the earth exists in its present condition. Whatever it is. Old Testament, New Testament, whatever. The commentator Cranfield, who's very popular these days, says that this verse here, Romans 8.18 is the key verse of Romans 8. I always thought to think of Romans 8 as being free from the law and killing the effects of sin, but Paul goes from sanctification, which are the effects of the Holy Spirit killing sin in us, he goes from sanctification to glorification, as, as we see. There's a lot about glorification in here, and maybe that's maybe that's more important than our sanctification. It, it's all part of the same process, but it's it's a wonderful wonderful goal that we have waiting for us, our ultimate sanctification. Verse 19, Paul continues, For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. Now what's the creation there? It's probably, as the NIV Study Bible says, animate and inanimate things exclusive of human beings. Animate things would be animals, plants, and vegetables. Inanimate things would be all non-living things like rocks, dirt, water. Why do we exclude human beings from this? Because we go to verses 22 and 23 later on in the chapter, in this chapter 8, we read this. I'm going to read just the relevant portions of those two verses. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together, and not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly. And so Paul contrasts the creation between the, the non-human creation with the human creation, us. And so I'm going to assume that that's true here. Other people have speculated that it says the creation eagerly waits is talking about human beings. I don't think so. Some people say angels, either good angels or bad angels, wait for God's sons to be revealed. No, probably not. Some people have said the Jewish people wait for the God's sons to be revealed. Why would you say that as opposed to, uh, no. Godly people, some people say, some people say it's the Gentiles. That's all speculation. It's talking about everything that was created except human beings. Now, we that this creation waits to see God's sons revealed in nature, if you will, uh, revealed before the animals and for, the, for nature, kind of to finish the tableau, the beautiful painting of God's final creation. But we're God's sons already, so why is it saying that creation waits to see God's sons revealed? Well, we are, if we're God's sons already, well, we're God's sons already, but the extent of our future glory has not been revealed yet. That's what it's talking about. The final chapter, the final installment of our sanctification has not been revealed yet. First John 3, 2 kind of reflects that. Dear friends, John says, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. 
So there's the now and the not yet. We're children now, but our, but the children that we're going to be, the sons that we're going to be, has not yet been revealed. When is this going to occur, by the way? When will the revelation come at the second coming of Jesus? When the final state is inaugurated, Christians will be transformed, be given glorified bodies. This We're going to talk about this a little bit later in verse 23. I'll read it in advance. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So our bodies will be totally bought out of slavery to the corruption that our bodies suffer. You know, we are spiritually redeemed, but our bodies are getting older and older, and they start breaking down. I read the other day, I heard the other day on a Greek podcast that probably 20%, excuse me, 10% of the world's population today is disabled, and the rest of us are fighting something, and it gets worse the older we get. But boy, we're going to be free from that. Our bodies are going to be redeemed. We go to verse 20 in Romans 8. For the creation was subject subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And I'll talk about hope in a minute. But first, the creation was subjected to futility. When did that happen? Well, the creation was cursed. Genesis 3:17 and 19. And he, God, said to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground. That sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? Thorns, thistle, sweat of your brow, intense, painful labor, futility. The word has the idea of vanity, emptiness. It doesn't reach its intended purpose. It was not meant to have thorns and thistles in it. Now, who subjected the creation to futility? Well, you know, it's it's an interesting point here. Genesis 3 does not say that God did it. It uses the passive, the ground is cursed, hides the subject. Well, I remember one time I was listening to one of these faith message heretic type people get up and say, God would never do that. God would not curse the ground. He's a good God. Only the devil would curse the ground. And I thought, man, you know, what are you talking about? And I could not come up with the verse until years later that showed that God cursed the ground because it's not in Genesis. But it is here in Romans 8:20. Because of him who subjected it, him it refers to God, because of him who subjected it. Now, I guess you could say that the him was the devil because of the devil who subjected it. So I guess I haven't come up with a slam dunk verse, but come on. God subjected the world to to futility because of our sin. We, we not only screwed up the human race when we sinned in Adam, but Adam and Eve, they, they screwed up that beautiful garden. They screwed up the whole planet. No, They screwed up the whole universe because it is a serious thing to sin against a holy, loving God who has created you. I mean, you couldn't do anything worse. And this, and the consequences were perfectly awful. Let me let me back up a little bit here. Because of whom, him who subjected it, the reason I know that's God and not the devil is because it says, because of him who subjected it in the hope, verse 21, that the creation itself will also be set free. Well, the devil never subjected the earth to subjection in the hope that the creation itself will be set free. That has to be God, capital H in the Holman Christian Study Bible. Now, the Holman Christian Study Bible says creation was subject to futility. The NIV says subject to frustration. Here's some examples of how the earth is subject to frustration or futility. Weeds, thorns, drought, floods, earthquakes, volcanoes, typhoons, tsunamis, blight, disease, infections, pestilence, death, and extinction. Now, you know, that's something that environmentalists, sentimentalists sought to ponder. Mother Earth, sweet Mother Earth. Oh, I love Mother Earth. Let me tell you something. Mother Earth, most of the time and often, is a real bitch. She ain't no sweet mother. But this environmentalist hysteria, brainwashing that has occurred, has made people have entirely the wrong idea about Mother Nature. I remember I pointed that out in a class in China. And I said, uh, oh, yeah, Mother Nature. And I showed that beautiful picture of the Earth, you know, that's taken from the moon, uh, from the uh, spaceships. And then I said, you think Mother Earth is sweet? And then I started showing pictures of tsunamis and earthquakes and all that kind of stuff. And I looked at him. I said, let me tell you something. Mother Nature's a bitch. And because they had never heard that and never even thought that, they all broke out laughing. <laughs> so let's go now to Romans 821. Well, that's the middle of a sentence. So let me read 8.20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope, verse 21, that the creation itself will also be set free 
from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. Now, the, the creation is corrupt, and it's enslaved to its corruption. Everywhere there is death, decay, and the savage law of tooth and claw. Death, decay, and the savage law of tooth and claw. That's Steve Ackerson, the master of the cute turn of phrase that we can all remember. Red with tooth and claw, as a lot of people have said, it's not going to be like that after Jesus comes back. It's not going to be like that. It's going to be set free. The curse on the earth will be reversed, just like the curse on human beings has been reversed for those who believe in Jesus. The earth will go back. Now, Steve Axelson says the earth will go back to the Edenic state. And I've got a question here. I'm not so sure about that because human beings didn't go back to the Edenic state. They were glorified. In, and I don't believe Adam and Eve were glorified in the, Adam, in the Garden of Eden. They were innocent, but they were not glorified. There was a possibility that they could die. They had a possibility of mortality. But by golly, when we go to heaven, there ain't going to be no more possibility of our mortality. We, there's not going to be any more possibility of our sin. We're going to be completely free from sin forever. So I would say that when the earth is redeemed from its bondage of corruption, it's going to be a glorified nature that cannot fall, and it's going to be even greater than Eden. And in fact, if, you, if you'll start listening to these Christian near-death experiences, you will notice that when they describe nature, it's beyond anything we can conceive of, and they're constantly talking about how beautiful everything is, how beautiful the grass and the trees and the lakes and the seas and all that are. And it says nothing like they've ever seen on earth. I have no doubt that's the way it's going to be. Now, there are two scriptures that are often used to talk about the earth being free from the bondage of corruption, and because they're so often used, I'm going to mention them. However, I don't think it's proper to use them. Let's look at 2 Peter 3, 12-13. As you wait for and earnestly desire the coming of the day of God, the heavens will be on fire and be dissolved because of it, and the elements will melt with the heat. But based on his promise, we wait for the new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. Now that phrase, new heavens and new earth, is often used to refer to the final state. I don't want to ever do that because in Isaiah, Isaiah used the phrase new heavens and the new earth, and he used it in a world where there was death and there was childbirth and there was uh, wearing out of things physical things. That doesn't sound like the final state to me. I believe the phrase is used for the new covenant. It's just another way of saying the new covenant, which would include the church age here on this earth. But now, doesn't this verse say that the earth will melt, present earth dissolved, and the idea is it will be purified with fire? Well, the problem with that interpretation is the word elements there means law. It's stoichia, I think. And I did a lot of this on my Orthodox Preterist YouTube and I think a video on YouTube, and I think I had a video, a video called Preterist Potpourri, and I covered that thing about First, Second Peter 3 referring to the end of the world. I don't believe it. I believe it's talking about the end of the Jewish legal age, because if you look, it's a really interesting thing. People never do this, but if you go to a concordance and look up that Greek word there for elements, and then look how it's used in every other place, in every other place in the New Testament, it's used not as physical elements like hydrogen and nitrogen, it's used of the law. So I don't think that verse is going to do for the new heaven and for the final state. Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea no longer existed. And I take an orthodox putter's view of this, which means that I think that the new heaven and the new earth refers to the new covenant. And of course, I do not have the time to go into Revelation here. Again, you can listen to my YouTube videos on Revelation, and I'll get into that there. But at any rate, despite those two verses not being used, in, in my case, I'm not going to use them, this verse here is absolutely true. The natural creation is going to be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. In other words, the same freedom that God's children will get by being adopted into re, to the redemption. Likewise, the earth is going to be free as it gets adopted into redemption. Now that word freedom, let's look at that. It could be interpreted a little bit differently in two different ways. We'll be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. Well, that can mean freedom from the curse of the law in this life, just like Christians are free from the curse of the law, so is creation free from the curse of the law in this life. Or Paul could be referring to the future life, the freedom of glory that saints will possess in the other world, the freedom of glory that they'll have in the other world. As Gill puts it, quote, free, free from all sorrows and afflictions, from all reproaches and persecutions, from the temptations of Satan, from doubts, fears, and unbelief, and in the full vision of God through Christ, and in a free conversation with angels and saints. So the freedom of God's children could be freedom in this life or freedom in the next life. Well, whatever it is, we're free, and, and the natural creation is going to be free, too, from its corruption. 
Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. So creation is personified as a woman in labor, and a woman in labor eventually will have her baby, just like this creation here is eventually going to be, have its baby, if you will. It's going to be perfect. It's going to be released from the pain and the groaning. Now, we're going to be talking a lot about groaning here. We're starting out here with the groaning of nature. We're going to go to the groaning of Christians and the groaning of the Holy Spirit in coming verses. Now, to express it poetically, Steve Atkinson says that the whole creation is engaged in a symphony of sighs and a groaning for glory. As I said, my good buddy Steve is really good at coming up with turns of phrases to make people remember things, just like Marchman Lee used to be good at that, too. Romans 8:23, and not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So as creation groaned in verse 22, now we are groaning. We groan within ourselves. That's continuing the analogy of the woman in labor groaning in the last verse. Now Paul mentions this groaning also in 2 Corinthians 5, 4. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, in this body, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. In other words, we're longing, we're groaning to get there in glory. So Paul didn't think this world had it all. He didn't think that all happiness could be found in this life. Now notice the Holy Spirit is a first fruits. That's the same thing as saying a down payment, a pledge. It's an evidence of current salvation, the Holy Spirit living in us, testifying to us and living in us. But a down payment means the the rest of the product has not been delivered yet. Ephesians 1, 13-14, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit, he is the down payment of our inheritance. Paul has just said here in Romans 8, we're heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ. What's our, what's our heritage? What's our inheritance? The whole glorified planet, the whole glorified universe. He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession. Redemption of the possession. God says, okay, I want Susie Q. So first of all, I'll put the Holy Spirit in Susie Q's life. That's a down payment. I'm going to do good things with the Holy Spirit and Susie Q. I'm going to help her get through this life. But hey, that's just a down payment. I want the whole Susie Q. And so I'm going to turn in my claim slip and I'm going to redeem. I'm going to buy her out. I'm going to redeem her, buy her out of slavery. And that pledge, that Holy Spirit is the down payment. I've already paid that. And then I'm going to give the rest of her payment when she dies and I'm going to and and that Holy Spirit that lives in her is going to totally make her over and make her into a perfect human being without sin totally transformed totally conformed to the image of Christ with all the characteristics of a glorified human being whatever they might be now there's an alternate way of looking at this which I think is kind of interesting the first fruits we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits I don't believe this but John Gill and Adam Clark mentioned it, so I think I'll mention it too. He says, and not only that, but we ourselves, the we is referring to Jews. We ourselves have the Spirit as the first fruits. And the idea is that the Jews were at Pentecost, so they had the Holy Spirit first before the Gentiles did, so that the Jews had the Spirit as the first fruits. I don't think so. Now there's that word adoption again. We also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now, as it turns out, Christians are already adopted as sons. And as it also turns out, there are three stages to our, adop- our adoption, as the NIV Study Bible points out. The first stage is predestination before we were born, Ephesians 1.5. He predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and will. Before we were even born, before the world was here, he says, I'm going to adopt you, Susie Q. So that's adoption b- before the world was created. And then... The second stage of adoption is our present inclusion as children of God. Romans 8, 14 through 15, and those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you, you did not receive a spirit of slavery, but you received the spirit of adoption. Galatians three twenty six. for you are all sons of God. So that's our present state of adoption. And now the third state of adoption is the future glorification of our bodies, which Paul mentions in our verse here, verse 23 eagerly awaiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And, of course, redemption means to buy out of slavery. Our, our bodies are slave, uh, slaves to, to death, but we're going to be bought out of that, so we're never going to die anymore. Now let's talk about this word groan. We also groan within ourselves. Verse 22, the nature groaned, and now we're groaning. 
Now, we still groan after we're saved. Our bodies still get tired, sick, grow old, and die. In other words, there's a lot of trouble in this life. Now, let's just talk about not just trouble in general, because the context of verse 23 is talking about our bodies. We also groan within ourselves, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. So let's just assume that Paul is talking about groaning about our bodies not being redeemed yet. So we groan because we get tired, sick, grow old, and die because of our bodies not being redeemed yet. Now, an implication. let's look at the implications of this. First implication, we could say that divine healing is gone for the day because our bodies are getting older and older and older. Well, that's nonsense. In fact, because the body is sick, we need divine healing and health just to make it through. If you say that divine healing is gone for the day, we could say the same thing about medical healing and the medical profession. Well, let's just don't try to get people well because we're all dying and we're under the curse of sin and we're all going to die and we'll just wait till we glorify it. Well, that's nonsense. But even with divine healing and even with medical healing, our body will still grow old and die. But that's not the same thing as saying we should pray for healing or go to the doctor for healing. And another implication of this is that since God cares enough about our bodies to redeem them, we need to take care of our bodies. We need to exercise our body properly. We need to feed our body properly. And we need to take care of our bodies. And oh, how hard is that to do, especially as you get older. We go to Romans chapter 8, verse 24. Now, in this hope we were saved. What hope? The confident expectation that our bodies are going to be redeemed and glorified, free from corruption, just like all the rest of the nature's corruption. In this hope we were saved, yet hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? And I guess Paul is thinking, this is a big piece of meat for you to chew. Do you think that all of this corruption that we live in is going to go away with you? It's, it's momentous. It's hard to believe. But Paul said, nah, hey, you don't see it. That doesn't mean it's not going to happen. He says, hope that is seen is not hope. You see something. Hope, by definition, means hoping for something in the future to happen desiring something to happen in the future that's good, even though you can't see it. That's what hope is. It's a confident expectation that something that you cannot see is going to happen. It's very closely relied to faith, because here hope is, that is seen is not hope, and faith that is seen, things that are seen is not faith, because faith is the substance of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Likewise, hope is not seen, but Paul is saying, just because you can't see the redemption of the world doesn't mean it's gonna, not going to happen. I love how the scriptures helps our unbelief because there's a lot of things that's hard to believe, folks. Now I say that this hope was for the hope was hope for the redemption of the creation from its bondage to decay. Adam Clark says, on the other hand, it's Paul is referring to the resurrection of the dead, the hope that we're all going to be resurrected. Well, that's close. Glorified, we resurrected and then glorified. It, it, it's both. Now, this idea of the resurrection of the dead is a foundational doctrine in all the creeds. Those who deny it are, by every orthodox person, proven to be heretics. We've got to have hope, folks. And I tell you, a few times in my life when I've hope, lost hope, I remember thinking during the Vietnam War, oh, my gosh, we, you know, this is this, what's the point of living? Things are so bad now. But I, God gave me hope. He gave me, I pray, I used to pray for it. I didn't see any future. I didn't see any hope. There's hope that the future is glorious, folks. I don't care how bad things are now. Mankind is ruined without hope. I've got a great quote from H.G. Wells, the science fiction writer, the atheist, the non-Christian skeptic. I don't know if he's an atheist or an agnostic. He didn't believe in Christ. He says this, quote, Mankind, which began in a cave behind a windbreak, will end in the disease-soaked ruins of a slum. Well, that's really optimistic, is it not? Here's a pagan myth that Adam Clark quotes, the myth of Prometheus. Prometheus, having made a human body, went up to heaven and stole some celestial fire to animate it. Jupiter, that's Zeus, incensed that the theft sent down Pandora with a box full of diseases and plagues of every kind as an ensnaring present to Prometheus. But he refused to accept it. Epimetheus took and opened Pandora's box, and instantly all those diseases, etc., by which mankind have been made miserable, flew out and spread themselves over the whole earth, and only hope remained at the bottom of the box. Only hope. Well, that's a Greek. The Greeks didn't. They had every culture in order to exist has got to have some kind of hope. I mean, even secular atheists or secularists today who don't have Jesus, they say, "Well, we'll make the world a better place. We'll have hope in science and politics." <laughs> Lots of luck for that one. 
1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Therefore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If there's no resurrection of the dead, that is, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Folks, it doesn't end here. If you just hope to get saved and live a good life here, uh-uh, it doesn't end here. you got to have hope for the future life too, or you are most miserable. We go down to verses, verse 25 of Romans 8. For if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. Patience means endurance. What we cannot see is the resurrection of the body and the redemption of the creation from its bondage to decay. We go to verse 26, Romans 8. In the same way, the Spirit also joins to help in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. In the same way, in the same way the Spirit joins us. What does it mean in the same way? The NIV Study Bible says in the same way that hope sustains us in suffering, as in verse 24, which reads, Now in this hope we were saved, yet hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? In this hope we are saved. Hope to be free from our sufferings in the future world. So in the same way that hope sustains us in the future world, in the same way the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. So hope helps us in our weakness and longing for the future world, and the Holy Spirit also helps us in our weakness. I don't think that's right. The NIV Study Bible is right on that. I think Steve Ackerson is correct here. He says that just like the creation groans in verse 22, and just like we groan in verse 23, likewise the Holy Spirit groans in the same way the Holy Spirit groans in verse 26. I think that makes a lot of sense. Now the question is, is why would the Holy Spirit be groaning? Well, he could be groaning over our ignorance of what to pray for. I don't think that's correct. It could be the Holy Spirit identifies with our weakness and suffering. I think that is correct. That's why he's groaning, because we're groaning. And he's joined with us to help us in our weakness. So we groan, he groans. Notice, again, as I've said before, I'll say it again in Romans 8, there are three groanings. The creation groans like a woman in labor, waiting for its redemption. Verse 22, 23, the believer groans. Verse 23, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And now in verse 26, the Holy Spirit groans as he joins with us in our weakness. Because we don't know how to pray, and he intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. Now what does unspoken mean? The Greek word is alaletos. It's a little bit confusing. What does it mean, unspoken groanings? Well, the straightforward definition of it is too deep for words, as, in, as the New American Standard Bible puts it. Thayer's lexicon has not to be uttered, not expressed in words, so it's he groans without words. In fact, if you think about it, a human being that groans usually doesn't use words either. It's just a sound, a moan. Now, some people have said that this unspoken language is referring to Paul speaking in tongues because we don't know how to pray, so we pray in tongues. Well, now, that's true. That's a great way to pray if you don't know how to pray for something. Speak in tongues because then the Holy Spirit prays and, and gets around your problem not understanding of how to pray in this situation, and that's fine. But I don't think this verse teaches that. I think this verse is talking about the Holy Spirit moving within us, but not causing us to say anything in our native language. Now, Paul says the Holy Spirit needs to help us because we are in our weakness. The Holy Spirit joins with us in our weakness. What kind of weaknesses? Here's some examples. Suffering due to the curse on creation. Suffering because we follow Jesus. Not knowing what to pray for. We're weak. And you know this thing about not knowing what to pray for. How many times have you been faced with that? Life is complicated. You don't know what should I... I remember there's somebody... There's this woman who has a, that I know who has a sister that was been a drug dealer since 16, a very, shall we say, unredeemed sort of personality. And she came, this woman, the, the Christian sister came to church and said, please pray for my sister that she get arrested. And I'm thinking, well, you know, you know, I'm not used to praying that people get arrested. That's a little, that's off my radar scope. She, no, no. She said, I've been praying for years. And by golly, the very next week she got arrested and she's still in jail. And the Christian sister said her, unregenerate sister is in a good place because it's helping her dry up and she needs to get straightened out because she's so reprobate. Isn't that something? How do you pray? Praying for somebody to end up in jail? Somebody asked me to pray for something I don't know the answer to. I, I pray in tongues. I don't know how to pray. But anyway, moving on. John Gill points out that spirit here might not mean Holy Spirit. It could be the spirit joined together with the Holy Spirit. So when it says in the same way, the spirit, the Holy Spirit joins to help us in our weakness, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. And what Gill says that means is the Holy Spirit joined with our spirit intercedes with unspoken groanings. So we're praying along with the Holy Spirit because it says he's joined with us. And that could be. 
I don't know exactly how the Holy Spirit prays for us, but it's kind of nice to know the third person of the Trinity is praying for his Christians all the time, interceding for us, when you feel lonely and abandoned down here in this veil of tears. Romans 8:27, and he who searches the hearts knows the Spirit's mindset because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's he who searches the hearts. That's God the Father. He knows the Spirit's mindset. The three persons of the Trinity don't keep secrets from one another. Everything one knows, the other knows. And so the Holy Spirit is in us, praying for us, and God the Father knows what the Holy Spirit's praying. And so that means that the God who made the universe knows every bit about your problems. And he's going to be praying for them. Man, I tell you, if that won't encourage you, I don't know what will. Let me read a good quote from Adam Clark. From all this, we learn that a fluency in prayer is not essential to praying. A man may pray most powerfully in the estimation of God, who is not able to utter even one word. The unutterable groan is big with meaning, and God understands it because it contains the language of his own spirit. Some desires are too mighty to be expressed. There is no language expressive enough to give them proper form and distinct vocal sound. Such desires show that they came from God, and as they came from him... So they express what God is disposed to do and what he has purposed to do. This is a matter of great encouragement to all those who are agonizing to enter in at the straight gate. Steve Atkinson points out that this intercession of the Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit who is known by, whose mindset is known by God the Father, that intercession of the Holy Spirit is for the saints according to the will of God. He doesn't pray amiss. The Holy Spirit never prays amiss like we can. Holy Spirit, he's going he's to pray right. Ladies and gentlemen, I am finished with Romans 8, verses 12 through 27. We will take up the next verses of Romans 8, namely verses 28 through 39. We will see how we have been predestined to this glory that Paul has been talking about in this this section of Romans 8. And we're going to talk about God's eternal love for those whom he has predestined to glory. I hope you enjoyed this audio, and I hope you stay tuned for the next one.